Daniel. I invite you to turn over there with me to the 8th chapter. And we're going to read together the first 10 verses. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served in Beersheba. But his, fun, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, they displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen, listen to all the people, to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but me. They have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all these words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we are approaching summer, we are entering into a week on, week off schedule with Kingdom Kids. So those who are familiar with our Kingdom Kids ministry, it's for those kiddos who have aged out of the nursery because they've hit four years of age, uh, all the way up through second grade, they do have the opportunity to participate in Kingdom Kids when we have it. It's a chance for them to learn and worship their level. Let me do mention that Kingdom Kids is going to be taking place, obviously, over in our CLC building, and I'm not quite sure where they're going to meet. Rosemary, where are they meeting for? Downstairs in the fellowship hall area. Okay, they're going to be downstairs in the fellowship hall area. So parents, uh, I think we're having, we will have Kingdom Kids next week. And so that's where they'll go next week is over into our two-story metal building downstairs. That's where parents can pick them up afterwards. Just keep in mind, the doors uh, for, for precaution do lock behind them. So if you need to pick them up a little early, you'll probably have to knock to get somebody to come to the door. I don't know about you, uh, but I'm guessing... It may have been a heavy week. I know it, uh, it certainly has been for me um, and for a lot of us. And I just want to take a moment to just kind of recognize uh, what we may be going through. Now, on a church level, just as a part of our church family, we lost an important member. Jay Streeter, as many of you know, passed away this week. And he was uh, a wonderful, godly man. And we continue to pray with Sue. There are no... Uh, decisions made on a service just yet, but it sounds like that's um, not going to be uh, relatively soon. They're still working through that, and Sue is with family. Wouldn't surprise me if she's watching online uh, with us this morning, and if she is, we love you, Sue. We're praying for you guys, and I encourage you guys to do the same. Just continue to pray for the Streeter family as they go through that uh, grief, and they're not the only ones grieving. Of course, we had the shooting in Uvalde this week, which uh, shocked all of us, I think. just It's hard to put in words how heartbreaking it is to, to hear about that and to, 
and uh, knowing what happened just down the road from us in Sutherland Springs as well. And so, you know, our hearts are, are troubled by that. And uh, in a similar vein, we're coming up on Memorial Day, which is, in a way, an acknowledgement, again, of loss for those who have protected our country and lost their lives in, in the line of that work, for, for which we are incredibly grateful. Uh, so there's a lot of emotions. I think it's, it's worth acknowledging that. You know, one of the most wonderful things that we find as we read through the Psalms is an acknowledgement of that heartache, of deep emotions of anger, of fear, of grief. We see that come through the Word of God clearly. And what that tells me is that God gave us those feelings. There's nothing wrong with those feelings. Now, what we do with feelings, there certainly can be a lot wrong with that, right? But to acknowledge the pain and hurt that we may feel, the Word of God gives us a way to do that. And it's through prayer. It's to talk to God about those things that are swirling on inside of us. And so I take great comfort in knowing that God bends his ear to us, uh, particularly so in, in our pain, in our suffering, in our loss. God, as the word of God tells us, draws near to those who are brokenhearted. And he's able to bind up our wounds and to heal us. And we just sang about that. He's able to take what are graves and turn them into gardens. And so we have this incredible hope before us of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that on the darkest day of human history, when it looked like all was lost because the Son of God has died, Sunday was coming. Which is, by the way, as you know, why we gather on Sunday. We gather on Sunday not because, you know, it's a weekend and we don't have anything else going on, so let's, let's get together on Sunday. No, no, no. We gather on Sunday because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And what is Jesus doing when he rises from the dead? He's saying, I've conquered death. So all the death we are mourning, and we should mourn, and we can't go through mourning quickly. The deeper you are touched by mourning, the longer it might take to journey through that, to find your way onto the other side of grief. But there is another side. There is hope. Not just that we hope that there's a heaven, but it's a faith, a belief, a trust that when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that he meant it and he did and he has and he's there now. And the word of God tells us that he prays on our behalf. He intercedes for you and for me, even and especially in the midst of hurt and pain. And so that we have a God like that, I think, does bring comfort to us when it seems like the world is out of control. We know God is not. When it looks like evil has won, we know that's not true. God has won. And when we mourn loss, we know that God has a way. God has a way in the midst of loss, not only bringing us comfort, but giving us a confident hope. That what is before us, what is ahead of us, is a great and glorious future that we couldn't barely dream of. But it's surely ours. Earned for us by Jesus. So we have that hope. And it's okay to, I know, I mean, I feel, you know, a lot of emotions. It's, that's okay. We just keep leaning into the Lord. And he makes things right. As we lean into him, we also say, God, what do you want me to do? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to show love to? 
How do I need to be involved? What's my role to play? In the midst of those prayers of sharing our hearts with the Lord, we're also open as His children to be obedient to His call in our lives, whatever that might be. We do that through prayer. And so as a way to pray about those things and also to move us to what God has for us in the Scriptures today, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts, with all that has transpired in the past week and even beyond that. We've seen hate come through in the most destructive of ways. From Buffalo to Uvalde and around the world. It's hard to have the right words for that, God. But we know you see it. We know you're a God of justice. We also know, God, that you are building a brighter future. God, that in you we have hope of heaven. And as your word tells us as we pray, that we ask that that hope of heaven be manifested in some ways here on earth. When your son Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, that's what he taught them. That's what he is teaching us through your word. Let what is done in heaven be done on earth. So just as we offer up our heartache to you, we also offer up our very being to be used by you. To write a few small things that are wrong in the world in our little corner of things that you might use us to bring that hope of heaven down on earth. So guide us in that, Father. Show us what that might look like. And in some small way, I pray that today's message from your word, God would speak to us. Somewhere in there, you would do what only your Holy Spirit is able to do and and bring the chaos of our lives in alignment with Scripture and show us what it is you're calling us to do. So Holy Spirit, be at work in us. Opening our minds to understand your will. Softening our hearts to receive your word. And readying our hands and feet that we may leave for this place. Ready to respond in obedience to what you have shown us in this time together today. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, we, uh, many of you know, we have been working through a Bible reading plan together. And each week I'm sharing from you. Something that we've read in the previous week and oftentimes trying to cover many chapters at a time or a broad section of a story at a time. And uh, just last week we entered into the story of Samuel, a young man that was uh, called from an early age to be a pretty significant figure in the life of Israel. Samuel is a judge. Oftentimes in the modern translations it will translate it as a leader. That throughout the book of Judges, you had these leaders that God would call forth when Israel got tired of God's discipline. They would say, God says, here's, how, here's the path you are to walk. Go this way. And they would go that way for a little while. And then they would say, yeah, but we're going down that path. But look what's over here. Look how they're doing things. Look at this. Look at that. And the story of Judges is people getting off of God's path. Following other gods. Worshipping other gods. 
And then God would discipline them and, and then they would begin to cry out to God, God help us, we're in trouble, we're, we're, being, you know, we're being ruled by these foreigners, what are we going to do? We keep losing in battle, what are we going to do? Please God help us. And God would send a judge to lead them out of their judgment into God's blessing. And as far as they would follow that leader and they would follow God, things would turn around. And then that leader often, as they pass away, there will be a time of chaos yet again. You have these cycles of judges. Samuel stands in the middle of that as a transition figure from a, uh, uh, a short history of experiencing judges now entering to a kingdom. Many of you know the name King David. That story's coming in a few weeks. We've got to go through King Saul first. King Saul was the first king of Israel. But Samuel stands in between these two, between the judges and between the kingdom, beginning with Saul. And he is this figure that helps transition them from where they were to where they are going. Now, this is not just, you know, outright God laying out, okay, we're going to go from judges and now we're going to go to kings. In a lot of ways, what the Israelites are asking for is not what God would want for them. But he's allowing them to choose. And why would they choose a king? They are choosing to reject God as king. Choosing to reject the way God is ruling them as king by sending them these judges, Samuel being the last of them. They're rejecting that and they are now asking God, for an actual monarchy. Why would they do that? Very likely they feel threat. They feel threatened by the Philistines. If you know the story of King David, you know the giant. The story of him killing the giants. One of the most well known stories in all of the Old Testament. And who was that giant? He was a Philistine. right? So you have the pressure that Israel is in this new promised land. Getting this new a place that God had promised them set up. But you still have enemies around them. Philistines being one, Ammonites being another. And they feel the pressure outside to conform, to be like others, so that maybe they can get along and they won't have to deal with the challenges that are in front of them. And that's the thing about it. Stress often causes us to make bad decisions. As you may have heard it said before, when our emotions go up, Our thinking goes down. When we're emotionally heightened, it can be very difficult to make good decisions. Usually if if you're really upset, what do you need to do? You need to take a walk. You need to take a time out. You need to take a break. You need to take a breath, right? You got to kind of calm down so you can really think straight so you can make a good decision. In some sense, that's an easy thing to do in our setting. Imagine if there were enemies around us nearby Trying to extinguish us. That's what Israel's going through here. So their anxiety has got to be through the roof. I mean, just, I think we got to just kind of appreciate their situation. Because they're rejecting God as king and the way God is coming to them as king through these judges, that seems crazy to us. Why in the world would you do that? But just understand they have enemies around them trying to take them out. And this fear is driving them to make a decision that on the face of it is wrong. And Samuel knows it's wrong. Samuel's not only hurt for God, he's hurt for himself, right? 
His whole life has been about serving God and serving God's people. And now they are rejecting him as the judge God has put over them as leader. He is feeling that ache. Now, what does Samuel do with that intense feeling of anxiety? He prays. We don't see God's people praying when the enemy's at the gate. We see them reacting. Let's get us a king. Let's go to Samuel. Let's pressure him to put a king in place. They're just reacting, right? Which is what we often do when we're emotionally upset. But when Saul gets emotional, or when Samuel gets emotionally upset, he prays. He goes and talks to God about what's troubling him. And God, in a sense, comforts him. It's it's going to be okay. What does God say to him? He says, listen, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And though it is not what God ideally would want, he says, you're going to anoint a king. I'm going to choose the king. You're going to anoint the king. And so that's the situation that's happening here. That's what's taking place in the life of Israel. It is actually a very big moment to move out of judges into a kingdom with a king and a dynasty that would begin with King David. But it begins before that with King Saul. Of course, King Saul's not the one, not his kids, not his sons are going to take up the kingdom. But King David is to come. Next week, we're going to talk about King Saul, who is an interesting figure. He's the first king of Israel. Got a lot to learn from the mistakes he made. Uh, But I want to look at this phrase that we find here in Scripture. Uttered by God's people to the prophet Samuel. And I want to break this down and look at what they're saying and see where those connections might be in our lives. So, 1 Samuel 8, 5, God's people says to this, says this to Samuel. He says, you are old. Now, that's not a great way to start a conversation. I don't know about you, but if you're talking to someone's old, that shouldn't be the first thing you say, right? Uh, probably shouldn't be anything you ever say. That's just kind of a rude thing to say. But they're recognizing, look, you're near the end of your life. Now, what's the problem with that? And your sons do not follow your ways. Right? So Samuel had said, look, my sons are going to take my place as judges when I die. Now, that's a bad, that was a bad decision. First of all, no judge had done that. No judge had said, my sons are going to take my place. They had, in fact, they said that of Gideon. If you remember reading that in Judges, the people said, Gideon, you're such a great leader. Let your kids be our leaders when you die. And he said, no way. We're not doing that. God is king. God is king. Not me, not my kids. God is king. Gideon had that wisdom. Samuel, for all of his wonderful qualities and godliness, lacked that wisdom to say, I'm not king. Therefore, my kids are not going to take my place and be your leader. Not only did he lack that wisdom, but like Eli, the one who basically basically was a spiritual father to Samuel, Eli's sons did wrong in the eyes of God and was why Eli was judged by God for that because he did not 
lead his family well, lead his sons well in the ways of godliness. Samuel's following in those same footsteps as Eli, and he has not raised his sons in godliness. And now these sons that he's appointed kings are appointed judges, which is a bad decision enough. They're not following God. So in some way, it's understandable that God's people would say, look, you're near the end of your life. And now you've got your sons that you are going to appoint as judges and they don't follow your ways. So they say, now appoint a king to us, such as all the other nations have. If you jump down to verses 19 through 20, it's repeated. Samuel does exactly what God tells him to do. God says, look, you, you need to tell them what they're in store for. You get a king, here's what it's going to like. Here's what it's going to be like. King's going to take your stuff. He's going to take your sons. He's going to build an army. He's going to tax you and take your crops and all this stuff. This is what it's like to live under a, a dynasty. This is what your future is going to be. You need to tell them that. You need to warn them. You need to let them know the consequences of this decision that they are making. And after he explains all of that to them, verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8 says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. That verse, 1 Samuel 8, 20, is what I want us to spend the rest of our time on this morning. Then we will be like all the other nations. See, Israel was unique. Israel was not a monarch. And it was not a dictatorship. Certainly wasn't a democracy. Israel was led by God. God was their king. God was their leader. God was the one in charge of them. In fact, God would give them rules and laws. If you've read them in the Old Testament, they seem a little odd sometimes. If you're honest with yourself, it's like, this is a little strange. Can't eat this. Can't wear that. I mean, it gets a little strange. Don't work on this day. Well, what's God doing? He's saying, I'm setting you aside. I don't want you to be like all the other nations. I want you to be so distinct from all the other nations that when they look at you, they'll know your God is different than their God. In fact, kind of at the very, be- at the very beginning, God gives this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world. It's going to come through your seed, through your children. And then when, God ha- or then when God blesses him, Abraham and Sarah, with their first child, Isaac, and he says, sacrifice that child. And then God provides a ram to take the place of Isaac. What's he saying? He's saying, see, I'm not like that. The, the, the structure you came from, the religious structure you came from, they would sacrifice their children to the gods. I'm showing you. I'm not like that. I'm different. Therefore, you must be different. I'm holy, set apart, other than. Therefore, you have to be holy. So the rules, the commands, the laws, all this God is giving them is so that they might stand out. Why? So that other people might see there's something different about Israel's God. Israel's God's not like our God. Israel believes in something we we don't believe in. Something's different here. And let me tell you, that should be the same today for Christians. 
It's not always that way. It's sad when it is. It's worthy of repenting when it's in our own lives. But as Christians, we are to stand out to be the salt and light in the words of Jesus in our world. That others may see us and know there's something different about us. Does that mean we're perfect? Of course it doesn't mean that. But it should mean that we know we're not perfect. Therefore, we're humble. And because we're humble, we're willing to admit when we get things wrong. That, that should be the mark of a Christian. is humility. Yet, having enough confidence that their standing with God is not based on what they do, but based on what God has done in Jesus. Therefore, I can admit that I'm not perfect. I can even admit when I get things wrong. That should be something unique in the Christian experience. That's the gospel being shared in the very way we live our lives. That's other people looking in on us and saying there's something different about these Christians. Yes, they blow it like the rest of us. But look, they're willing to say it. They're willing to own it. They're willing to to change, to be different, to seek to be Somehow holier. See, what Samuel's upset about, really what God's upset about, is not that Israel wanted a king as much as why they wanted a king. You can find prior to this, God talking to them about one day you're going to get into the promised land and you're going to ask for a king and there's no judgment about it. The issue at hand is not necessarily that they want a king. It's why they want a king. And one of the reasons they want a king is because they want to be like everybody else. And everything God has been commanding and showing and leading them towards is to be different than everyone else. Not so they can be unique and special like a snowflake. But so that when people see them, they would see a reflection of God in them that is different than anything they've ever seen. Because what we should know as Christians is what we have in God is different than any other religious system the world knows. There is a higher order, a God out there. He demands this and you strive to meet it and you hope for the best. That's the world's religious system. In some ways, that's the world's secular system. That is not Christianity. Christianity says there is a perfection that you cannot reach. Therefore, God stepped into the world as a human being and Jesus Christ himself to meet that perfection on your behalf. Because you couldn't meet it, we call that sin. Jesus took that sin for you and died according to your sins on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He rose again victoriously, showing he had power over sin and its result, death itself, to give us hope. That is a wholly different way of relating to God. It's a wholly different way than living. Because God is different. How could He not be? In our human thinking, when we reject God, we come up with notions that make sense to the human brain. But our thinking's down here, and God's thinking's way up here. So, how on our own could we ever conceive of this kind of God? We could not. So, God has to reveal Himself to us, and that's what God does with Abraham and his descendants. And that's what he desires to continue to do through Israel. So when they say we want a God to be like everybody else, what they're saying is they're rejecting everything God has done. From the calling of Abraham to the delivering them out of Egypt to bringing them in the promised land, they're rejecting everything God has done for them so that they can be like others. We feel that pressure too. Let's not kid ourselves. We feel that pressure too. I just want to be like everybody else. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different than. 
I don't want people looking at me thinking I'm weird. We feel that too. Let's be honest. We feel that too. This is one of the great lessons we can learn from this story. God's calling you to be different. Jesus says to us, I am calling you to be light and salt in the world. When we take up that cause to reflect God in our lives, even when it does make us different, because it will. And this stands out as one of the reasons God's upset with Israel. Not that they wanted a king, but why they wanted a king. And they wanted a king in part so they could be like everybody else. And that's not what God had called them to do. They also say in verse 20, we want to be like others with a king to lead us. We want somebody with flesh and blood, bones, skin. We want somebody we can see, somebody we can prop up, somebody we put on a pedestal. We want that king on the throne. We want to be a human being. We want that king to lead us. Someone like us to lead us. Not someone like God. Not someone perfect and holy like God. I'd rather hear from someone like me. I'd rather someone like me be in charge of me. Because then I can relate. And then sometimes maybe I could say, well, that's what you think. We don't want God as king. We want a human being as king to lead us. Then we would be like other nations with a king to lead us. Now, it's not like they didn't have a leader. They had God leading, right? Not only that, but God had chosen a judge, Samuel, over them to point them his way. So you would think that they would rationalize in their mind, we've already got this king to lead us. But it wasn't the way the rest of the world had a king. It wasn't this top figure, this military leader, this strong king. They didn't want the kind of leader God was. And how he was leading through Samuel. And what I I get from that is... They really just didn't want God telling them what to do. They didn't want that close of a connection with God that God could speak into their life and point them in the right direction. There's something pretty heavy about that. Because when you know for a fact that God says, do this, don't do that, it's really hard to just say, well, no thanks. Because it's God. And if you believe it's God, it's very hard to turn God down, you would think. But if it's a human being... Well, now things are negotiable, even as a king. Not not every citizen in a kingdom would follow the king. Though they certainly had a lot more power and clout than someone like a president would in our system. Even so. The question that arises here is, who are we willing to take orders from? And they wanted to take orders from a human being rather than God. And again, we have to ask ourselves, are we in that place? Would I rather take advice from a book that I read, from an expert, from a horoscope, et cetera, et cetera, from a friend, from family? 
I'll take, I'll take my marching orders from all those. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'll listen to all these voices. I'll turn on the TV. I'll flip on social media. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to all of that. Before I ever go to God and say, God, what do you have to say? What are you calling me to do? What are your marching orders for my life? I can disregard all of that and do what I want to do at the end of the day. Or I can take their advice and I can blame. I got somebody to blame. But when it's God, a different situation. They didn't want God to lead them. And I think it has to do with the fact that they had embraced God leading them. They would know that this God had all authority in their life. But we have a loving God. That's the thing. It can be scary. In fact, I think a lot of people may reject Christianity all right because they like being in charge of their own lives. I don't want a king over my life. I don't want somebody in charge of my life. I like to be in charge of my life. I like to do what I want to do. Right? Sometimes people reject faith altogether. They like Jesus as Savior. But it's frightening to make Jesus their Lord. And if you feel that way, can I say, you are on the right track. That's exactly what it means. You're not sugarcoating it. You're not pretending like you're getting into something that's not true. You are exactly right. If you enter into, by faith, a relationship with God through Jesus, you are, in fact, making Him Lord of your life. So good for you about being trepidatious of that because that is no small thing. It's not just God loving you where you are. It's God loving you enough to take you from where you are to where he wants you to go. And you bet that's going to require pain and sacrifice and letting go of some things that you're holding on to. And doing things you'd rather not do. But the final product of you becoming more like Jesus is greater than you might even imagine now. But that's... What God can do. But yes, it absolutely means you don't get to call the shots. I got to tell you, I've made enough dumb decisions in my life. I'm like, yes, thank you, Lord. Someone else does need to be in charge of this guy because I'll screw it up. You know, it's a hard lesson to learn, but I, I don't think Israel had gotten to that place yet. They wanted. They didn't want God to be king. Two more things, we'll have to move quickly through these. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and to fight our battles. To go out before us meant we want a king to judge us. In fact, in some translations, that's what it will say. A a king to to be the judicial leader of our our, uh, people. To be the one who decides who's right and wrong. That's what a king could do, to to serve as that final authority. We want someone who can take care of the mess. Take care of our mess. Ultimately, that should be God. Even whatever system God has in place underneath him, ultimately God is judge. God is righteous. God is fair. There is no other judge like him. Therefore, even any human authority that has judging responsibilities, be it a parent, a teacher, or a governing official, whomever, should always see themselves as subservient to God in heaven. 
who is the actual one calling the shots, who's the one who lays out the law, who says this is right and this is wrong. But Israel didn't want that. They wanted a king to judge them. Now what we find in Jesus is a king who judges rightly. Reminds me of the story of the woman who is caught in sin and he says to her, where are your accusers when all those who had come to bring her to Jesus that he might judge her guilty of adultery and stone her to death? And when Jesus says, he who has not sinned, you can be the first one to throw that stone. Go for it. And they all walk away and he bends down and he's bent down and then he engages the woman and, and all of her accusers. He says, does no one stand here to accuse you? Have they all left? Now, what does he say? He's a perfect judge in this moment. He does not say, you know what? That a whole adultery thing, not a big deal. You know, they're just, they're just, you know how religious people are. They're just worked up. Don't worry about it. Relax. You're fine. That would be a judge who doesn't uphold justice. Uphold what's right. He says to him, says to her, go and sin no more. But he also says to her, I do not judge you. I do not condemn you. In other words, you sin like the rest of us. Now, Jesus wouldn't say that because he didn't sin. But we can say that. We can see that woman caught in adultery. By the way, you know, the man's not there. But of course, he was guilty too. He can, God can say through Jesus, I don't condemn you. What you did was wrong, but I don't condemn you. Do you see that? That's God being a perfect judge. God is the only one who can ever strike that perfectly. We, we will get that wrong left and right. But God never does. He knows how to be the perfect judge. And this is who Israel is rejecting. But this is who we should accept. A God who knows our flaws and yet loves us. Who's covered over our sin through Jesus. And praise God we have a God like that. Thank you, God, for being that kind of God. The last is one who can go out and fight our battles. They wanted someone who could go out and be that military leader, that commander to take charge and fight their battles for them. Now, what they failed to remember is that God does not need us to fight battles for him. He actually proved it twice. We don't have time to get into it. But if you just go back and read 1 Samuel 5 and 1 Samuel 7, you'll see on two occasions, God wins the battle for Israel without Israel's help. God does not need us to gain the victory. God will use us. In one case, Israel wasn't there at all. In the other case, Israel came in after God had already won the victory. What's the point? Is that they want a king so that they can win the battle. And God's saying, you don't need a king. Look, I've already won the battles. God has fought and won without their help. We don't need someone to come in and save us. Sometimes that's what we look for. We look for someone or something to come in and fight our battles for us. To gain the victory for us. Or we say, that's my job. I'm in the role of going out and fighting and winning the battles on my behalf. What does it look like to trust God in those battles? To let Him gain the victory. 
that he might also not only gain the victory, but also to gain the glory. They wanted to give their glory up to a human person. And God says, listen, I'm your king. I fight for you. He's demonstrated that. And Jesus comes into the world and he does fight the battle for us, doesn't he? A battle we couldn't possibly win. A battle against sin and death. And he has the victory. And all of this, it's not that Israel wanted a king so much as why they wanted a king. And all the reasons they wanted a king were so poor. And in light of Jesus, we can see that in Jesus, we have the perfect king. But a king will sit on the throne. A king is not going to let someone sit on their throne. And that's the question for us. Are we searching for other kings? Do we want to be king ourselves? Or are we able to say, no, Jesus, you're king. I don't need a human king. I don't need to try to pretend to be the king. I don't need to be the one that will lead. I don't need to be like other people. I don't need to fight my own battles and my own strength. God, I want Jesus to be on that throne. That's a decision we have to make. And if you're like me, you've got to make it a lot. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing to let Jesus be Lord of your life. It's often a daily thing. Sometimes an hourly thing, depending on what you're going through. And you have to keep turning your life over to Jesus. But He is so loving and so kind. He's so wise and just. He's powerful. So when we do say, Jesus, you be king. We have all the confidence in the world that we're making the right choice. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenging story of your people at this moment of transition. And, and God, I, I, we certainly can't pretend like we don't know what it's like to want to be like the world, to want to call our own shots, to want to look to other places to tell us what to do or give us hope. But, but Father God... We can't ignore Jesus is the perfect king. Help us to submit our lives to him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe there are some areas in which you